You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average podcast, and he's not your average host. The James Altucher Show presents Wall Street Insane. Pre-pandemic, when in the studio, James doesn't have to do shit. Yeah, <laughs> go now, to the uh, table, <laughs> sit down, and then everything just on me. That like, even though when he has to rap, I will pull up a sign like, "Hey." Rap right now or whatever. Now he has to do everything. Yeah. Yeah. But, all right. So, Dan, your first podcast on the James Altucher Show. This is my first podcast ever. ever. And this might be the first time I've done like a Zoom or whatever you want to call this since we were all together trading. And we were selling probably our largest client's company. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we were doing Zoom then. We were probably doing like No, Skype you wouldn't be able or- to see us. What's funny is when Jay was setting this up yesterday, he said, do you have a microphone? I said, yeah. And I held it up. It was from 2004. And he's like, what, what is that? And I'm like, it's, it's a microphone. He's like, no. I have no idea. Yeah. 
Jay has a PhD in this stuff and you stumped him. He literally said, I don't know what that is. And I said, well, we sold a pretty big company in 2004 with this. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that, that wouldn't work. That wouldn't work. It, it looks like an alien technology. Just one, one stick right there. It was just a, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Just by way of intro, Dan and Omid are, are on the podcast. Dan, you and I have worked with together since 1999. We've been business partners and we've spent so much time on so many different businesses and ventures and life changes and everything. Omid worked with us. Omid, when was it? Like, it was like roughly 2002 to 2007 or eight, something like that. Yeah, I think that sounds yeah. about right. And Omid, you've gone on to, to bigger and better things. You were at, you've been on the podcast before, but you were at Citigroup doing a lot of crypto stuff and doing a ton of crypto things. And now we're telling the real stories of Wall Street, not the bullshit you read in the Wall Street Journal or books or what you see on CNBC. This is like the real ugly stuff. That's the reality. Then we started working together because at, at the VC fund, at the venture capital fund. We started in 99 at 212 Ventures, which was InvestCorp backed. And then there was the tech bust. We kind of split out instead of going to InvestCorp and said, let's figure it out. And I don't think we really had any idea what we were going to do other than maybe trade. But that was the beginning of pretty much anything that we could kind of do to figure out, to do whatever we, we did. And we, like, we started trading together and we immediately blew up harder yes. than anyone could imagine blowing up. Very quickly, very quickly. Like I lost my home, everything because of that first blow up. That is correct. And Omid, this is the one story maybe that doesn't really involve you as much, but it's kind of an origin story. Mm -hmm. Dan and I had had breakfast right next to the World Trade Center. Yeah. And on, on a very sunny, beautiful day. By the way, futures were way up that morning. We had been down four or five days in a row, the markets. Yeah. And so as per our system, our, the computer said, load up. We had a quantitative system that, that I had programmed. The computer said, load up. So we had loaded up the night before. Futures were way up in the morning as predicted. And then I remember, Dan, we were walking down Church Street, and which is between the few blocks between the World Trade Center and my apartment where we worked. And you saw a, a plane coming in and, and you said, is the president, in, do you remember this? You said, is the president coming into town Absolutely. today? Absolutely. I said, is Bush coming to town? Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. suddenly it was like whoosh right over us. I mean, you could see the logo. I mean, it was like a couple, only a couple hundred feet above us. Yeah. And it went right into the World Trade Center. Everybody like naturally ducked for some reason, including us. Like everybody yeah. went to the ground. Yeah, it was wild. And do you remember? I always wonder, there was a guy videotaping his son. Yeah. Yes. And like, I wonder what happened to his video. <laughs> I feel like we've never seen that video. And he was right on the corner. Yeah. It would have been the closest video to the whole thing. Absolutely. I felt like he filmed the entire thing. Like he heard it, saw it, turned, filmed it, and we watched it. And it, it was great. But I've always looked for that video. Never, never, never seen it. And then I remember first we went back to my apartment and we were stupid enough to take the elevator. Like, can yes. you imagine, oh man, we took the elevator up. Clearly there was a problem and they could have shut down the electricity. Anything could have happened when we would have been, and that was a pretty secure building with no 
management. So we could have been locked in that elevator for weeks. Yeah. So One, I don't remember this story, but also I just want to add that what's remarkable about it is like most of the rest of us who were in New York then, like I was uptown at school, the initial was like, oh, some small Cessna had crashed into the World Trade Tower or something. Yeah. But you guys were close no, we enough saw to the realize. American Airlines logo. Yeah. Right. That like something terrible had just happened. It, it took, for a lot of people, I feel like it took until the second tower was hit to realize that this wasn't just a freak accident. Well, I, I would say for us even, I mean, there was probably shock involved. We knew it was a problem, that there was something tragic that just happened. But it was after we went back to James's apartment, came back down to the street to see, you know, if everyone was okay, what was going on. And it was literally timed up almost within a minute, two minutes, where the second plane came from the south. And that's when we were like, oh, oh. No, that's when you were. I was yeah. still in denial. We couldn't see that plane because it was from the other side. But we saw the building. Yeah, we saw the building like start to explode. There was another explosion. Right. And I said, oh, no, that was just from the first one. It was still like it had passed somehow to the second building. I was like rationalizing it. And you were like, no, man, we're under attack. We're under attack. And then we went back to the apartment and we saw the Pentagon got hit. And that's when I was like, oh, okay. Like, I really thought no one had gotten hurt. There was like some remote control that was guiding the plane and it was too early, even though it was like 9 a.m. And then we tried to call our broker. Who was at the Empire State Building. Yeah. And I said, sell everything. And he's like, why do you want to sell so fast? And I'm like, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And they basically just hung up. Because they were at the Empire State Building and yeah. they all ran out of the building. Yeah, they all evacuated at that point. Yeah. Oh, man. Wow. And then we went, I remember we went to the fire department on Dwayne Street and asked if we could help. And they threw us like fire suits. Yeah. And we're like, no, we're not firemen. We just want to help. And they're like, no, 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 only firemen. And they all basically died in the World Trade Center that day. A lot of them certainly did. Yeah. Yeah, it was terrible. So that was the beginning. We, were, we had been working before at the VC fund. Yeah. But that was the beginning of working just you and I together. I think we just started that late July. Yeah, yeah. And then I was totally going to give up. And I remember you stopped by like a week or two later after literally the dust had cleared and said, no, let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. Yeah. And for better or for worse, we did. It was a miserable bunch of years, day trading and hedge funding. We met Omid though. We met Omid. <laughs> like he said, for better or for worse. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, I did love trading and I was always amazed that I think that the way we start I started trading with you guys was James, we were introduced by Pamela, I think. We were introduced I, at the party. At at there was a birthday party for the one hedge fund guy who had funded me at that point in, in a house in Greenwich, roughly. And okay. we met at that at his Christmas party or his birthday party, something like that. Okay, I feel like we got together for lunch for sushi because I was, I'd been out of college a bit and I had been looking for work and it was the 2001-2002 recession. So the kind of jobs like normally going into a, a bank analyst program wasn't that available. And then you and I had lunch and you were like, oh great, I've written this software that we use to do our back testing. So I'm going to send you all the code tonight. And you can start trading on Monday. Man, I was so ambitious back then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's my code. I'm gonna, 
I'm going to send it to you after I get back from this party at midnight tonight. Like, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Within a week, I think Omid knew the code better than we did. Yeah. Well, you were writing on the code too, right? You yeah. were like, yeah. 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 I think, uh, and it was uh, Wealth Lab. That was the, the software, right? Which yeah. Was, for yes. the time, I feel like that was pretty cutting edge, what we were doing. Yeah, it probably still is actually. I mean, yeah. it's a pretty good software package. We might have been the only people using it. We were definitely <laughs> the top people using it. Like, I know all of my programs that I had written and shared with the Wealth Lab community were like the top viewed programs. Yeah. Even before I had written any articles or anything like that. This was long before that. Like those were the ones that everyone was downloading. So we were all we were all day trading. And this is even just intro. Like the miserable stuff starts later. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a hard thing because I don't know how you guys felt when you know you would put on a trade. We would all decide in the morning what was the trade of the day. And then we would put on a trade and usually it actually went fine. I mean, that was the whole nature of this system is that you would clock in small gains 95% of the time, but 5% of the time you were at risk of like a big loss. Yeah. And yeah. I would be miserable on those days. Like I couldn't help it. I still, just this morning, I had a friend text me and he texted me the headline on the payroll numbers. And he said, what does this mean for the market today? And it literally took me back to 2003. You know, I was like, oh my God. I was like, I can't even respond to that. I don't want to have an opinion on that. I have no idea. There's so many things that go into that. There's so many things that you think that should mean that it, it's, you know, and I pretty much wrote back and said, listen, find a no load, you know, ETF, buy it, and don't ever pay attention to headlines again. That doesn't give the dopamine hits of day trading, though. That was the yeah. benefit. Yeah. Like some days when we were up, you know, we'd call around and say, look, we traded for a half hour, we made our money and done for the day. I will say though, and Omid will modestly probably not agree, but he was much more relaxed and reasonable when it came to coding and trading. We probably, so, coming from where we came from, which was just a year or two ahead of this, and just the whipsaws that we saw in 01 and 02, it was a lot. That was a lot to deal with. Well, was, yeah, ignorance is bliss. And I think that was the main thing that I had not been through what you two had gone through in the year or two before we met. Uh, and also, like James, at that point, you already had a family. And so you had, I was living with like a random roommate in Queens at the time. And like my cost of living was like five, $600 a month. So from a risk-taking perspective... Uh, I was a lot more free to let it rip. But I did come to the same conclusion that you two did eventually because after we worked together, then I went off and tried to trade on my own for a bit. And part of my decision to leave it all behind, other than the fact that I wasn't very successful at, at it, was that I met a few people who were naturally good at it. And I realized that they had something that I never would. That it wasn't a question of like, hard work or finding the right system or reading the right book or something like that. That there was just some innate ability they had to think about the markets, but also manage their own emotions and understand risk that I would never have. You know, it's almost like in stages. Like I think at first we had a system that we would play. Then second, it was figuring out position size. And this was very instructive, which is that at some point we would only trade one or 2% of position size, something like that, some ridiculously small amount to, to manage risk. And then finally there's 
I guess there's when you adjust the system, but then there's also emotions and when you go out of the system. Like the one time, I don't know, again, Omid, if you were, you must have been around then, but maybe not. Maybe it was still right before we met you. There was one time when he picks up the phone. I don't know why. I would never have picked up the phone. <laughs> and I say, we got to sell everything. There was some bombing in Turkey. We just got to sell everything. So he sells everything at a big loss. And then I'm think I didn't sleep. Like two or three hours later, I'm thinking, you know, this is bullshit. Like, who cares? I mean, obviously people in Turkey care about this, but it's not like another attack from whatever. It's not like the U.S. is being attacked. So the U.S. market's going to recover pretty quickly. So I don't know if I called you again or if I just bought everything back, but I bought everything back and like then some, and we ended up having a good day. <laughs> but there was stuff like that that was very stressful. I mean, it was just nonstop. It never ended. <laughs> Omen makes the great point that the other issue on top of coding, looking at the different patterns, looking at the headlines, figuring out what trade we want to put on was, are we trading to make money to pay our bills this month? Or are we building a business? Are we building a track record? And That's a good that, point. If you get caught in between those two things, it's generally going to end up in disaster. And I think Omid always had a real good, reasonable outlook, probably because of what he said. He was a little younger and didn't have a family. And I was living in my parents' basement pretty much. So I didn't, you know, there wasn't much for me to worry about at that time either. But, but he had probably a more reasonable, longer outlook and kind of saw what we could have built. Whereas we were, you know, you had a family, I was starting a family. We, we had more pressing needs at that point. Man, I was like suicidal so much during, during that whole period. But then it only got worse once Oma joined us. <laughs> <laughs> it's because at that point we were actually becoming a business. We were starting to raise money and there's the added layer of building a business. The day of my wedding. The day of my wedding. Oh, yeah. The day of your wedding. That's right. And Omen, you were definitely with us then. So this is when our friend Neil, I won't say the last name, but Neil wrote us a $5 million check. And that was the first other investor other than that original. You know, there were small ones. And then there was the original hedge fund investor. But Neil wrote us a, a check. And that became much bigger over time. It, it became, became much bigger that next week. Yeah, he wrote another check because I think he the did. first month with him, we turned a big number yeah. and he was like, and he was running a fund of hedge funds. And so we were like, this is, he, he just kept writing checks and we got the first check and basically opened up official business instead of just managing a bunch of accounts. We were managing now. Oh, this was a hedge fund though for the fund of funds that started our fund of funds. We did both. Yeah, we did both. That was the trading. Omid was pretty much running the trading arm and we started the fund of funds with Neil as well. We kind of did both. So we were already trading and Omid was kind of running that. And we were getting cut. You know, we had some clients that we were adding to that. But then Neil came in and was kind of the first big number, I think, you know, reasonable, kind of call it institutional. And then we also started to fund the funds there. And that's when we eventually, pretty soon thereafter, met Michael. Yeah. And, and just to summarize, during these next, let's even call them 10 years, but five to 10 years, we must have interacted with every scandalous newsmaker in the business. Everybody from Bernie Madoff, Stevie Cohen, John Paulson, who became famous for making money on the whole housing market. There was a, the, the other Ken Starr who also went to jail. Not the lawyer Ken Starr, but the hedge fund Ken Starr. Izzy Englander. Yeah, Izzy Englander. Now that you're mentioning all the last names, I'd like to 
I'd like to leave the podcast. <laughs> I'm, we're going to get killed. Yeah, yeah, I'm comfortable. <laughs> well, I'm not saying what they did. I'm not saying what they did. I was we'll fine it. coming on until you started mentioning the last names. Like, <laughs> I mean, we were, I mean, state governments had to be involved. And, and there were so many people, like, so many hedge funds turned out to be frauds. We knew hundreds of hedge funds because running a fund of hedge funds, we had to analyze lots of hedge funds. And I would say us and maybe like three others were the only non-crooked hedge funds. Yes. I mean, and I hope they weren't crooked. Even uh, Neil, who we won't mention his last name, who was our biggest investor, and we were sharing office with his operation for a while. I, I will never forget when his either his accountant or risk person came in just to ask like a markets question. I was like, hey, I was going through our portfolio and I came across some interesting trades that I don't understand. So you're a trader. Can you explain to me why someone who's running two different macro, not even macro, one of them was like an equity fund and the other one was, a, I think it was a mutual fund timing fund or something. And then this person said, can you explain to me why one of them would be long euro futures that barely trade three years out and then the other fund would be short the same exact futures contract that don't trade three years out. And I was like, I cannot explain that other than to say there's no good reason why somebody would put that on. Right, because I guess if nobody noticed that contract, like if it was so many years out and it wasn't liquid, like it probably didn't hit the radar for anyone, it was easy to manipulate. So his bigger fund didn't mind the loss while his smaller fund took a huge gain so he could raise money. That was my impression too, that there was yes. some way to effectively transfer value from the LPs of one fund to the other while going through the market. And to be clear, this is alleged. We don't really know yeah. anything, but it was yeah. just our conclusion. The rule was, it's not like we were like private investigators. The rule was just don't get involved because people did get hurt in the business, <laughs> like severely. Well, the best part about that too is I feel like what Oma just described we saw in a ton of funds. Oh my gosh, we saw everywhere. That would do stuff when they were small and they would basically, what we felt, they were manipulating returns that we knew wouldn't work out, but they raised so much money on top of those returns that when they finally wrote those down, it was nothing. I forget the fund. I know we did not invest in them, even though we met with them and they really wanted us to invest. This is when we were doing a fund of pipe funds specifically. And what a pipe is, it's called private investment in a public equity. So you privately invest in a stock. And the reason it's private is because it's not like a secondary offering, which is to the public. It's you make a deal with the CEO where you say, hey, your stock's at $10. I'm going to give you a million dollars but at $5, not at 10. And the CEO, because he needs the money to run, or they go bankrupt, it's usually small companies that do this, says yes. And so now you just bought stock at five, it's trading at 10. So depending on what the rules are, you could sell immediately at 10 and double your money, or you could hold on to it and just say, hey, we got this stock at five and now it's at 10. We're up 100% on this trade. And so there were all these funds that were up hundred percent a month because they would do these deals on the last day of the month and then they would raise money for the next month and like you said dan they would raise so much money that they would write down they would take the loss on that initial one because it was no longer meaningful to their fund because it was such a small amount while they continue to do this bigger and bigger and eventually 
they, they would have three, four, they started at $1 million, but they had three, $400 million in their management in just a few months, and they were taking enormous fees, and, and then they and would shut down after I, taking millions and millions of fees. I remember that fund. I actually know the name of that fund. Probably still have their one pager. And Oma definitely remembers because I see him smiling. They were in our office a couple of times up on, up at, you know, Fifth Avenue. And we knew what they were doing. And we would call around and talk to other institutions and investors and funds. And they're like, no, those guys are great. And we're like, what are you talking about? We see exactly what they're doing. And they're like, no, no, they're great. We're adding to them. And what would always bother us is we would always do everything the right way, by the book, buttoned up. And yet we struggled to raise real money like that because we didn't want to do what those funds were doing. Yeah, no, we were so bulletproof in terms of honesty. And, and by the way, I think that's a good thing. But now knowing what I know, if I needed to, I could make a list of 100 different ways we could have scammed <laughs> given the money we had under management. We did nothing, though. All those funds blew up in 2008, and all those GPs made tens of millions of dollars and disappeared. And we returned pretty much 100 cents on the dollar, give or take, right? I mean, pretty much right there. Yeah, including the blow up, including the, the market crisis and stuff. And then those were our final investors. Yeah. And had people complaining to us. Oh, yeah. Almost every investor complained. Right. It was ridiculous. The average hedge fund returned, what, 20 cents on the dollar? And we literally returned 100 cents on the dollar. I'll take it a step further. And this is something where... Again, this would always be funny dynamics between the three of us, how we should handle an LP like this. But we had an LP that we did not charge fees to. They literally yeah. were in our fund for free. We returned 100 cents on the dollar. I forget which one of you it was. You, we figured out we made money for him. We, it was. It was like 103 cents on the dollar. Never charged him a fee. And he not only complained to us, but I think he slandered us in the industry. Like it, it yeah. was... It was incredible. I'll just say, I think James and I always kind of reasonably took the high road and we were wrong. Omid was always right. Omid <laughs> wanted us to square guys like that up and we should have. In 2019, he said, James, meet this guy. You guys should meet each other. I even forwarded it to you and I just didn't, never responded to anything. No, I was going to say, I just remembered, I had a flashback to you sent me James once to deliver a copy of your book to his office. If I recall correctly, his office was like down to yeah. some walking distance from where we were. And here, like we were doing this night, not only were we managing his money for free, but giving him a free copy of your book. And there was something about his attitude towards all of that, where I was like, this person is just not grateful for what they should be grateful for. And I think it was from then on, that I was like, we can't just keep letting him walk all over us because it only gets worse. Well, yeah. and, and you're right, but here's, here's my thing. And this is a very important characteristic that it's probably why we all work together so well is everybody plays a role. And so I was usually the salesman. I was usually trying to figure out how to get people to invest and in selling them. When you're on sales mode all the time, you just want people to like you no matter. And maybe I'm wrong in this. Like maybe this is why... Ultimately, I didn't raise all that much money, but I was probably too eager to have people like me. So I kind of ignored when they treated me poorly. I mean, I knew this guy very well. And he, one of the things I liked about having him as an investor is his dad was the CEO of a major investment bank. And I felt like, oh, this will be good 
connections, even though the dad had refused to invest with us. I still felt there was something there. And the other thing was, I don't know. I don't know if there was another thing. I remember though, I called, I, I remember when I was, and we'll discuss this part. There's, there's, this guy is related to both the Madoff story and the John Paulson story. And again, John Paulson turned hundred million into 6 billion by investing in against the housing crisis. And we did not invest with him. He gave us the opportunity to invest. We didn't with like that deal. Yeah, we didn't like that deal. <laughs> so we can talk about that next time. But I will say there is one thing Omen was probably wrong about. And that was Omen. I don't know if Dan remembers, but Omen, do you remember when this family office, a group of Italian investors, maybe they weren't a family office. Maybe yes, they were. Yeah, we were, we were in that meeting together. Yeah, yeah, we were all in that together because you were in town and they wanted to invest like 40 million with us, but instead of paying normal fees, they wanted to pay like 0.1% in fees, like almost nothing. And Omid, and, and I was unsure what to do. I think, Dan, I don't know where you were at, but Omid, you were really insistent. Do not take the money. We've got to treat ourselves with respect or no one else will. We cannot take, these guys are disrespecting us. They cannot give us money at 0.1% fees. That's like no fees. And in retrospect, I think it would have been good to get the money even with no fees, just because the more money you have in your fund, the more people will invest big chunks of money with you. So that would have been almost like virtue signaling to investors everywhere that, hey, we crossed the $100 million mark. Now we're, we're investable. We're, we're investable to the big guys. At that point, $100 million was was big enough to be investable to institutions. Yeah, you might very well be right. That was a mistake. But where I was coming from was that part of what I did, you were like the salesperson and um, the leader, Dan, was like kept everything together with his tight organizational skills and stuff. And I was sort of like investor relations in some ways that a lot of times when our investors had a request or an issue or something, they would call the office and I would pick up. And then I would say, okay, uh, you know, James, you need to talk to these people or Dan, we got to get him some information. And the duality of the treatment that came from, we had some investors that paid full fees. And then we had other investors because again, we were perhaps too nice. If you guys remember our seed investor, Neil ended up being in some financial situation where he had to withdraw all of his money, even though he was under lockup. And we could have just said no. Legally, he signed the contract. That's that, said that he, money. He threw, he threw a chair at me in our lawyer's office. <laughs> Someone probably finally saw the two accounts that had opposite positions on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. And, and and the lockup existed for good reason because we were a fund of funds. We had already invested the money in funds that had their own lockups. We had no way of actually getting his money out. Right, but because we were grateful to him for having helped us get started we decided to go out and find somebody to basically buy his LP stake. And to grease the wheels of that deal, that's how we got investors that basically paid no fees because we were trying to help Neil get out. Yeah. It pains me. Like, we were such good guys, and I'm glad of that because I'm proud of that. But it, it does something for you in a personal sense that you could look back and say, I always did the right thing. But in a business sense... Dan and I always have a quote, Omid, and we always say, when are we ever going to be able to be dicks? <laughs> like <laughs> everyone else was just a big dick to us. That was the, the lesson that I learned because we had investors who paid full fees and we had investors who paid 
no fees. And almost universally, the ones who paid were always much nicer and more respectful. And mind you, I was, what, 24 years old at the time. I was like the kid just manning the phones and responding to emails. But you, you were an old soul, though. You, you were <laughs> 24. We told people you were 40. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the jarring distinction, and it always went back to a piece of advice I got when I, immediately after I graduated college, I was negotiating with this hedge fund for what would have been a dream job, which then I ended up not accepting for other reasons. But they asked me, they were like, what is your salary requirement? And I had no idea how to answer because I was kind of like competing for with more experienced people and MBAs and stuff. And I sought the advice of a future a mutual friend of ours. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I have no idea what your answer should be. But what I do know that in business and in life, don't ever underprice yourself thinking that will get you to where you want to go because it'll have the opposite impact. And that advice was always in the back of my mind. And when we had these investors now that the ones who we did underprice ourselves by giving them a fee break were the ones who would call and yell and be like, where's my K-1? I got to do my taxes. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. I can't give you the K-1 because six of the nine funds that we're invested in haven't given us their K-1s. And then the ones who paid full freight on the fees were always like, please let us know when the K-1's available. Hope yeah. you're having a good Tuesday or something. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Although, I mean, I have some stories about some of those guys too later on, but but yes. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And 
listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I was just talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We also saw in retrospect what a lot of, we've talked a little bit about what we saw the, the portfolio funds do. And, and again, I'm glad we did everything the right way, but you know what a lot of other funds we knew at the time would have done, they would have taken the 40 million, maybe charged nothing. They would have invested the 40 million into deals where the GP took all the warrants or the GP got a kickback or the GP, they would have absolutely figured out a way to be on the take. And we saw that from tons of our portfolio funds. And and by the way, just to be fair, many times it would be disclosed somewhere in the 300 page legal document that they had the right to take warrants or do something. And I mean, to the point where there's a very well-known fund that we were invested in where we were a, a decent sized investor, but their largest investor who we were friends with and, and actually was invested in our international fund at one point called us and told us that that fund had taken $12 million from them. Just took it. Yeah, no, that one, it was $12 million. The SEC contacted that guy, the hedge fund that took the 12 million he paid instantly. He paid a $50,000 fine exactly to right. shut down the whole thing. Yeah. And then he completely disappeared. Like I remember messaging him on Facebook saying, hey, how's it going? Just to see if he responded. He like deleted his account. He was gone. The crazier part about that, and this is a little bit to, to Omit's point, and it's terrible. It's terrible behavior. But I was talking to the guy, the investor who was based in Europe, 
and he called me and was asking our take on it. And he said, look, our forensic guys know you took the 12 million. We know you took it illegally. Give us back six and we're fine. And the fund manager that we knew that we were invested in said, no, no, I'm going to give you zero. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. He, he paid a $50,000 fine. And like that guy who called you, who was, the one, who was the, a huge investor in the illegal fund we're talking about, he was really upset because in England, unlike the US, there's a very, it's like a cultural thing, I guess. He was telling me, you don't really get a second chance. No one's going to really forgive you if you have this black mark on your record, which in the US, almost every hedge fund manager I could think of restarts after a massive failure. And he was like, I'm out of business if forever, if this, so he had to stay in courts for forever. And he's, yeah. I don't think he ever solved it. He's now in a different industry. And he was yeah. a very well-to-do, came from a, a, a good family in England, like that he was proud of. And I think I had met his dad or his brothers, but that like ruined his career. But there was no way to double check that stuff with, with a lot of these funds. That's why I would never actually invest in a hedge fund. <laughs> well, yeah, it kind of though, you know, and eventually we'll, kind of this will feed into it but we always did everything so buttoned up and people would just question us and just run us through the ringer and again it was very difficult and that kind of plays into the the madoff where he kind of played on that right like how can i possibly you know invest in a fund like you, you know and and it's just funny how that kind of played out that way how almost doing everything the right way as, as Oma just said, you know, turning down the Italian family office because they didn't want to pay fees, doing all the due diligence to, to our detriment, giving money back, going out and taking new money at no fees or low fees to repay an LP because they're in a bind. Really, other than us sitting here saying to ourselves, man, we were really good guys then, really did us no good. I mean, it, it, No, and I remember one time I called one of the funds we were invested in Ironically, they're probably just a few miles from me because they're in Atlanta right now, <laughs> or they were in Atlanta then. And I remember I called them up mid-month. I called all the funds in mid-month just to say, hey, how's it going? Like, how are you doing this month? And he was like, why the fuck should I tell you? <laughs> and we had $2 million invested in him, yeah. which at that time, one of our larger investments, it was like in our second or third month. And I didn't even know what to say. I'm like, I, I wasn't like a tough with him. Whereas like, I feel like all our investors would have been tough with, with us if we had said that. <laughs> yeah. They blew up, of course. They totally blew up in a very Public shady way. Yes. deal that yes. we never really found. Like somebody went to jail for that deal. And I don't really know what the final outcome of that was. It's like some nursing company. Then there was another fund that was invested in us. It was a Seattle fund of funds. And I remember they had a fund that they were invested in that had just been caught as an illegal fund. They lost all their money on that fund. And the main guy, Arthur something, he was in a panic. And I would literally call him every day. And at that point, they didn't have any money left over because nobody was investing in them because they had this fund that they had invested in that was illegal. And he was like crying. He's like, my career's over. You know, no one's going to invest money with us. Our returns are going to be horrible. And I would just call him just to check in and say hi because he was suffering. And then eventually... They did have some money. They invested in us. And, you know, that was that. And eventually we returned their money to them. And, and like you say, Dan, they, they made money with us. And then a few years later, we were raising money for something else. And he was no longer there. So I called his second command, Ken something. And Ken said to me right away, I explained what we were raising money for. It was another fund idea. And Ken said, 
with all due respect, James, you guys shut down your fund. Why should I invest with you now? <laughs> and I'm like, we made money for you and we were really good to you guys. By the way, we shut it down before the crash. Right. Like we returned your money like before everybody else in the pipe space completely collapsed. So we had one competitor who I think is still returning money to people like 15 years yeah. later. And then that guy also wrote me a few years ago about crypto saying like, you're not a crypto guy. Stop saying you are. And I'm like, who are you again? Anyway, people really have interesting personalities in the Wall Street or hedge fund space. You have to be really aggressive and maybe even, I, I don't want to believe that you have to be a bad guy to succeed because there's many good people in the business, but we certainly dealt with. It, it felt that way back then. Yeah. I, and Omen doesn't remember this because Omen and I had this discussion. Final story on this. Do you remember the Tiger Club? Yes. You remember we presented to them? Absolutely. So this is a club, you, to join this club, you have to have a net worth of over $10 million. And I'm not going to say anything bad about them. So I'm saying, we had a friend who was in the club and, and you have to expose your whole um, portfolio. And then they meet with hedge fund managers. Omid would remember that guy. Yeah, you would remember yeah. that guy. His name's Seth, yeah. real estate yeah. guy. Yeah. So he was in the Tiger Club and not related to the Tiger Funds. This was like a, a club of high net worth people and they, and they would meet with hedge fund managers as, and, and as a group, invest and recommend hedge fund managers. So anyway, they didn't invest with us, but to their credit, the head of the Tigers club came over a few weeks later to our office and laid out all the paperwork and said, listen, one of the funds you're invested in is a complete scam. Here's all the de details. We were invested in them too, but we just withdrew our money and we want to just show you why they're a scam. And they did. And we pulled money out from them immediately. This was before we shut down. We pulled money out. And that fund got in big trouble. Like there was an FBI informant inside the fund and they got in big trouble later on. Although they restarted to have hundreds of millions of dollars under management now. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they, anything ultimately happened to them. There was a huge investigation. I think they paid a $50 million fine. Okay. Yeah, and then I think they, they got out of pipes and went into mortgage-backed securities. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course. But this is just episode one of these insane stories. Again, we were just catching up here. Like we haven't even yeah. gotten to some of the meat. So stay tuned for episode two. Let us know if you like this episode and these stories. And hopefully we'll get around to some good sound advice about building your own hedge fund business and financial <laughs> business and some tips on investing and trading. Cause ultimately we made a lot of money that way, but it's all gonna be horror stories from here on out even worse than these. And, and this one, we got pretty horrible. I'm trying to think, like, these are all bad memories. Is there any, we got to close with like one good memory. I have a good one. Um, okay. There was one of the funds was a gentleman, I believe he was based out of Dallas, Texas. And yes. um, I, towards the end, I had already moved on from working with you guys to pursue my trading. You were, you'd been winding down the fund of funds for some time. And it got to the point, there was like, one LP left, but the amount of money at stake was like literally 20 grand or something. What, one fund left, you mean that we were- well, right, Sorry, one fund on. left. And it would not have been yes. worth continuing to run the fund of funds for another year and paying the operating expenses. It would have cost more than the 20 grand. So Dan called me and he was like, you want to just buy this stake from us at you know, X cents on the dollar and you can probably get something out of it, a small return. And I was like, sure. And I did that. And for another two years, this fund manager, who he himself had 
shut down his fund, moved on to some business unrelated to pipes or hedge funds. He fought doggedly and he ended up making me like $4,000. Yeah. And I was so moved by this that at the end I was like, and his name was Jim, since we're saying good things about him. And I was like, Jim, why are you even doing this? Like even I gave up. Uh, This was not a lot of money and no one expects a illiquid investment like this for you to be able to get anything out of it years down the road. But he just said something like, I had a responsibility to my LPs and it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. He he was a good guy. And you know why? Because he was the least experienced of all of our funds. <laughs> so he was like a formerly a used car dealer and then he got into the hedge fund business. He went back and I think he's a very successful car dealership guy now. I think he went back into the car dealership business. Yeah, that was Jim. But that reminds me though of a bad memory, unfortunately, which <laughs> I is- I thought we were going to end on a good one. No, this was the fund. Remember there was like the hedge fund astrologer. She was like some like Paul Tudor Jones astrologer at some point. Yes. And then the guy died. The other guy died in the fund. And But it was a mysterious death. And it, he, they had an ongoing investment though for a really long time that we would even communicate with that company. Did they ever come out of, with money? No, no. You you remember how that and Omid knows both of the, I mean, so they were a portfolio fund and we did fine. They gave us all our money back and we had one legacy investment. There was one investment left. And I think we finally got our money back, but then they started a new fund and that's where they were trying to get us to invest. And we said, no, we're not doing it anymore. And it was a very interesting strategy that they got into. Yeah. It was a trade finance strategy where like ships leaving with oil with oil from Norway wouldn't get paid until they landed in Saudi Arabia, something like that. And it was, and so you would finance the trip yes. and you essentially would make an automatic 3% a month doing this. And we did some due diligence. We called Dean and he said, you know, the oil business is a pretty mature business. If there were like opportunities like that for essentially 40% a year, that opportunity would immediately go away. Yeah. So we decided not to invest. And the guy swore up and down, no, it's legit. It's my college roommate. I know him really well. And it turned out to be one big scam. And I don't think our guy knew about it. Yeah, I'm not sure if he knew about it. I mean, but you remember it was. It was trade finance between, literally, it was like Middle East and South America. And there were a lot of different characters, a lot of moving parts. And he did. He pressed us for a long time about it. And we did. We had other people looking at it. I think I even remember talking to Omid about it at length. And it just seemed, it was one of those classic deals we saw in 2004 where somehow they magically returned 3% up every month. Just literally, it was automatic. And if you recall, I reached out to him a couple of times, like three or four months in a row. And like in the fifth month, I reached out and I just got a message back that he mysteriously died. Yeah, we don't know uh, how No idea he died. And also he and his partner were married. I didn't know, or they had a kid. I didn't know that either. Yeah, didn't know that. So there was a lot of weird stuff going on there. Yeah, that was, and I think we told the third party that we had looking at that fund. And I said, hey, that guy mysteriously died. And his response was basically, I'm, I'm not surprised. Just that there were wow. so many different crazy characters involved in that, in that deal. And by the way, that wasn't the only death we've seen in this business. I was going to say that one of my favorite James quotes of all time was, it was something along the lines of like, 
if somebody really needs our money, it's a bad sign. Because we would, yeah, there would also right. be deals where we would meet someone and they would be like, oh, we have this billionaire is involved and that like massive hedge fund is involved and you know this famous quarterback is already an investor, but we really want like your $200,000 to close the deal. Like Bill Clinton and George Soros. I remember this specifically. It was like an Africa telecom company. Bill Clinton and George Soros were going to come in in the very next round, but they needed to close this first round first, and they just needed like $25,000 from us. Yeah. And like not yeah. a big number. And I said, do you mean to say Bill Clinton is waiting by his phone right now <laughs> wondering, is James Altucher going to invest in this deal? And like every deal was like that. It was so yeah. stupid. All right. I'm sorry. One more good memory. Is there anything? I mean, we all met. That's a good memory. And we all worked together really well. And it was a lot of exciting stories. But I'm feeling anxiety like from all these. It's bringing me back to that time. There was a lot of good. You were having success. Your first book was doing well, James. Trade like a hedge fund in those early years. It was actually like a surprising. I remember the editor or was like, these are very impressive numbers considering you were not a famous person back then. Yeah, and also the book was, they, they were selling the book for like $80 a copy. Right. Which I was against, but it got like Barron's Best Business Books of the Year. Um, what was that thing that Stock Investors Almanac made it the book of the year? USA Today called uh, added it as a big investing book. But yeah. okay, here's here's a good story. And this is connected to you, Dan. But you mentioned how you delivered a book to our other friend, but you also delivered Trade Like Warren Buffett, my second book. I think you delivered it to Mark Patterson's office. Yeah. And Mark Patterson was a huge guy at CS First Boston when Dan worked there. Yeah. And that's how I met Mark. And then he started a hedge fund and he bought like private debt or whatever. Distressed debt, yeah. Distressed debt. And it became a multi-billion dollar fund. I'm sure this guy's a billionaire now. And he was already like a huge guy. And we, you delivered the book to him. And then within minutes, he called me. It's a huge guy. He's running a $5 billion fund at the time. Huge guy. He called me and said, thank you very much, James for this book, can I tell you my Warren Buffett story? And so A, I was delighted that he had called me and thanked me and he did it right away, which is something I need to do better of. And he then told me the story. He was having dinner with the queen of England and which is very Mark Patterson and yeah. WorldCom was going bankrupt that night, which also brings up bad memories because we were day trading that, but WorldCom was going bankrupt that night. So he's going back and forth to this dinner with the Queen of England. He said he felt really bad about it. And he was trying to buy WorldCom distressed debt because it just went bankrupt that night. And WorldCom's predecessor company, MCI, had owned all of the infrastructure for the US government, all the telecom infrastructure. So he knew there was value. And usually a bankrupt company, the distressed debt might go for pennies on the dollar. And he was telling me, first he was bidding like 10 cents, 15 cents, 20 cents. Someone kept bidding higher and higher all throughout this. He couldn't outbid ultimately someone who was buying billions of dollars worth of WorldCom debt like Mark was trying to do. And he only found out later it was uh, Warren Buffett bought all of the debt because he knew it was going to get 100 cents on the dollar. So he's willing to pay up to whatever. Yeah. That was a good memory that Mark responded and he was a class act, that guy. And we had yeah, known him was. for years at that point. He was. He was great. So yeah. next episode, part two is more of horror stories, because it gets worse. <laughs> well, and I'll say for the next episode, the Michael sale of his company, which led really to Omid, mm -hmm. a, a lot of Omid's early trading business, right? Yeah. Which led to every, it led to where we are now, right? So 
we basically made Michael 30 or 35 million more dollars than he would have made. It led to Omid trading, which led to where Omid is today, which is very successful. You know, Michael made a ton of money. There's corrupt politicians involved. There's all kinds of stuff. So there's a lot of stuff. But that was a positive, that was a positive story. That was positive for, for all of us. Well, for you guys, for me, it was four days a week. Well, okay, we'll get to that story next time. Thanks a lot, you guys. And Dan, welcome to the podcast. I can't believe all these years. Dan and I still work together every single day on every deal. And we were partners in so many different things and still are. So, Dan, after, was it, like eight years, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate it. Let's let's do it again in 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) See, well, we'll do another episode like this in a a week. But sounds good. See you guys later. 